This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Cyber is everyone's business. It's in every corner of every life. And so the workforce behind cyber security should reflect that. Cybersecurity and national security benefits from a diverse set of perspectives. And I have seen the value of having a diverse set of perspectives in the same room coming up with solutions. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. On our final Women's History Month episode with Girl Security, I sat down with Girl Security scholar Amanda Kay, who discussed cyber crimes and diversity in the cyber field, with Kemba Walden, Assistant General Counsel of Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit. Welcome to Smart Women, Smart Power, Amanda. Great to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to turn it over to you. You're going to be our interviewer today. Before we do that, I thought we'd get to know you a little bit better, a little more about you. Let's start with what prompted your interest in this intersection of cybersecurity and democracy. Well, I come from an area that places a lot of emphasis on tech development and innovation. And I do think that part of my interest in technology comes from the fact that I've kind of grown up in a generation where I don't really remember life without touchscreens. I also do love sci-fi novels and short stories, and it kind of sparked my interest when comparing how there's these works of literature that kind of hint towards a dystopian future we could potentially head towards if we prioritize the development of technology, rather its potential effects on society. Fascinating. And I've known Kemba for a number of years, and so I know how outstanding she is. Really smart, just terrific, and a great choice. But I'm wondering how you came across Kemba and, and why you chose her as the person you wanted to interview. First of all, I just wanted to say that I've really admired Kemba's work leading the ransomware program for the Digital Crimes Unit at Microsoft. Also, I do think that her background in political science and national security alongside cybersecurity is super insightful when discussing the idea of democracy alongside this technological perspective that sort of prioritizes the fast development of tech. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. She's the perfect person to talk to about this. And so I'm very excited to hear this conversation. Over to you, Amanda. Yeah, I'm so excited to speak with Kemba Walden today to discuss her thoughts on the interaction of cybersecurity and democracy in recent years. I wanted to thank you, Kemba, for agreeing to speak on this podcast with me. It's such an honor to be interviewing you. To start, how did you become interested in political science and how did that lead you to work on digital crimes and cybersecurity? Was there a specific moment in your career or life that led you to pursue a career in cyber safety? Well, thank you, Amanda. It's such a pleasure to meet you. And thank you for inviting me to this podcast. I came to cyber in a sort of twisty, turny way. There wasn't a straight shot. Like you mentioned, I was a political science major in college. But little known about me is that I started off as a biomedical engineering major at Johns Hopkins. I embraced my technical background for a little while until I got to go organic chemistry. And then I decided to press pause and to think about what I'm really passionate about. And, and the thing that interests me the most are personal relations how governments operate, how people relate to each other. 
And that's what led me to political science. I, I was one of those high school kids that did AP bio, AP physics, and model UN all at the same time and decided to change course when I got to organic chemistry, frankly. I grew up in the West Coast of the United States, but also in the Bahamas and was forced at a young age to switch cultures often, sort of code switch on a regular basis. So watching how people react to each other and what really impacts relations between countries was really quite interesting to me as a child. But once I got through college and through graduate school, I thought maybe I need to expand my horizon a bit. And I ended up doing international development work, humanitarian relief work, conflict resolution work in Tbilisi, Georgia, and the former Soviet Republic of Georgia early on in my career. That led me to understand that development was undeniably connected to security. And at the time, cybersecurity wasn't even a thing in my world, but security in general. So that's how I got from political science to security in general. I went to law school to really focus on macroeconomic development. Again, I was too, I'll say lazy, to get to political science and economics. So instead, I went the law school route to implement macroeconomic development policies or to develop them. Doing that, while I was in law school, 9-11 happened. And I remember exactly where I was. So you asked the question, what moment led me to cybersecurity and, and cybercrime? I'll give you two. The first was 9-11. I was in law school. I remember it was here in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And I remember distinctly, I never thought my home base would be someplace that was attacked. This only happened in other places that I had visited. And by this time, I traveled extensively in Sub-Saharan Africa, extensively through Eastern Europe and saw the consequences of war and insecurity over the long term. And it just didn't occur to me that that could happen here at home. You may not remember, but in 9-11, no one really knew on that morning sort of whether we were at war, what was happening. But that had a profound impact on the trajectory of my career. The second one is the uh, attack on our elections in 2016. Again, I was at the Department of Homeland Security in what is now known as the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency. When we realized early on what was happening and how our system was so vulnerable, that helped me pivot my career. Because again, I go back to the idea that a community is only prosperous when it feels secure. I was finding these areas where we were experiencing some insecurity. And so that led me further into cybersecurity and national security and protecting what's so valuable to me, which is our democracy. Your pathway towards cybersecurity and national security in general is really fascinating. I myself don't exactly remember 9-11 just because I, I wasn't actually born yet. But I do remember 2016, and it really did have an impact on how we kind of, you know, viewed the election system. Alongside your experience in national security and cybersecurity, I know in general, they're both seen as fields that are traditionally dominated by white males. In general, what is your perspective on the amounts of diversity you've seen and experienced in these environments? And how has that changed as you navigated your career path or as future generations seek to pursue careers in cybersecurity? Yeah, so this is an area, national security and cybersecurity, unfortunately, it's an area that is dominated by white men. It's getting better, though. I have seen the value of 
having a diverse set of perspectives in the same room, coming up with solutions. So it's important to me that we continue to diversify those rooms. So for me personally, I become fearless when I'm in a room and where I understand that I am not in a diverse space, right? So I insist on being seen and heard when I'm in those rooms. That comes with time and an age being fearless in that way. A little bit of wisdom, although I don't, I'm not wise about everything. I do bring all of that experience with me. So on a broader level, I do try to find opportunities at this stage in my career to really nurture and mentor diverse perspectives into this field. I will accept often opportunities to provide guidance or mentorship. I will grab another colleague and bring them into my work so that they can enrich what I'm working on and I can help propel their career. But I, I'd like to see that happen more often. I actually learned that from a judge that I clerked for when I was just starting out as a lawyer. He did suggest <laughs> that if he brought me on as his clerk, that I would do similar work for those that come after me. And so I've been leading my professional career in that way. But cybersecurity and national security benefits from a diverse set of perspectives. And I know I'm long-winded, but here's why. In the cybercrime world, in particular, cyber criminals come in all shapes and sizes. There's a bit of psychology that you need to, you know, maybe it's armchair psychology, there are professional psychologists, but there's a bit of psychology that you need to employ when you're coming up with a strategy for going after cyber criminals. You can't do that if everyone thinks exactly like you. You can't mimic that diverse cyber criminal world in order to come up with an effective strategy, as an example. Yeah, that last part you said was really insightful. I do think that we don't necessarily consider that other cyber criminals might not necessarily look like what they're perceived in the movies. On that note, what experiences do you think people of underrepresented groups hoping to break into cybersecurity should consider, especially someone just beginning to get interested in cybersecurity? So cybersecurity is a broad area of study. It's gigantic. It's not merely understanding bits and bytes or, or computer science or how to code, although those elements are important. I think almost any discipline belongs in cyber. To students, I would recommend, and this is going to sound a bit soft, I bet, but I would recommend ideally pursuing your passion, whatever that is. There's going to be a connection to cyber in some way when you finish your undergraduate studies or your graduate studies. So for me, like I said, I happen to be good at science and, and numbers, but that was something I tried to repress my whole childhood. It's a long story. My dad was a doctor. I didn't want to be a doctor. So I tried in the best way possible to repress it and ended up really focusing on people and the human experience and relationships between countries and political science and learning languages. And it turns out that all of those experiences are key to how I practice cybersecurity law now. I'm also a lawyer and did not go to law school with the intent of practicing cyber law, but came out of law school really honing my craft, becoming a good lawyer, and then finding a place for me in cyber. And with help and mentorship from people like Suzanne, before I got there, you find your way. So the first thing I would say is 
pursue your passion, there's going to be space for your passion in cyber because of the broad nature of cyber. But also seek out people who have done the work that you're interested in pursuing and ask them questions just like you're doing with me today, Amanda. Thank you. That's such valuable advice. I would like to talk a little bit more about your experiences in the Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit, given that it does branch off many different fields of study and across many different countries. From your experience as an attorney and working with people across so many different specialties, what do you think others, whether large private sector cybersecurity organizations or smaller initiatives, can take from Microsoft Digital Crimes Unit approach to cybersecurity? We take a super analytical approach to countering cybercrime. What does that mean? That means that we look at the applicable laws. We find creative ways to apply those laws. So for example, the Digital Crimes Unit relies heavily on intellectual property law to get after cyber criminals. I didn't learn about that in my intellectual property law class in law school. But we also have a host of data scientists who analyze certain data sets that Microsoft has. We also have business specialists in our team. We have investigators. Think of them as the police or the FBI. So we have, I alluded to earlier, a diverse set of skills that come together to really evaluate, develop, and pursue effective strategies to go after cybercrime. One of the strategies that Digital Crimes Unit is well known for and that's been useful is that we, instead of going after the cyber criminal, him or herself, We try to make significant impact by pulling down criminal infrastructure. So in the media, you might have read about TrickBot, for example. That is an infrastructure, a botnet that cyber criminals often use to deploy all sorts of badness in the cyber ecosystem. To do that, to pull that off, we needed great lawyering. We needed great investigative work. We needed data scientists to make sense of the data that we have access to. We needed business analysts to understand the bits and pieces that we needed to put together to bring together a case. That doesn't mean, though, that we don't go after the cyber criminals. We've, in the ransomware space in particular, have provided great assistance to the FBI and other law enforcement to bring certain cyber criminals to justice. So there was a person that was extradited from Poland a couple of days ago that we helped the FBI pursue to bring to justice for deploying a a really nasty ransomware. We have several examples of that working as well. But again, that took strong legal skills, strong investigative skills, strong data scientists, and then building trust relationships with the government. So the secret sauce for DCU is that we really bring to bear different talent to pursue a common strategy to counter all sorts of cybercrime, including ransomware. Thank you. That was incredibly fascinating. Now I'm hoping to discuss a little bit more about the shift you see happening in cybersecurity and how this either fulfills democracy or prevents it. As a general introduction to the topic, I'd like to know a little bit more about your perspective on where cybersecurity is kind of headed in this matter. If you define cybersecurity broadly, I would say the biggest trend right now is to counter disinformation, malinformation, misinformation, and the use of our platforms to promulgate bad information, right? We're seeing it now in the crisis in Ukraine, in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're seeing cyber-enabled crime to enable the spread of misinformation and disinformation. So we're seeing 
a tremendous amount of focus, not only from the government, but in the private sector on how to counter that activity without suppressing free speech or political speech. Some of those things that we hold dear here in the U.S. Again, that's cyber broadly defined. Another trend I'm seeing being amplified by the crisis in Ukraine is the cybersecurity concerns around blockchain technology, the blockchain technology that supports the transfer of value over the internet, so digital assets, cryptocurrency. We're seeing a trend around hacking crypto exchanges to raise money. We're seeing a trend around using blockchain technology to evade sanctions or to, on the other hand, provide assistance where assistance is needed. But at the end of the day, blockchain technologies built on open source technology and on non-fungible tokens are built on open source technology, which can tend to lead to vulnerabilities. So I'm seeing an academic train on how cyber and innovative technology like blockchain are coming together. That's a little bit further into the future. Right now, though, I see uh, quite an emphasis on misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. Yeah, for sure. I think both of the trends you've identified are really interesting. And personally, as someone who is, you know, part of the generation that's kind of grown up with social media, I definitely see a lot of that disinformation, misinformation online. And there is a really huge conversation of whether suppressing that would be like suppressing democracy in a way. Do you think that as of right now, there is a lack of diverse perspectives regarding gender and race in cybersecurity legislation? And has there been sufficient progress in making sure the interests of all citizens are represented? You know, we have quite a ways to go in that space. Policymakers really do need to think hard and long about this. And my focus these days are on cyber workforce and diversifying our workforce, but also trying to find opportunities to be more inclusive of different perspectives and different backgrounds, professional backgrounds and practical experience in this space. Like I said, cyber is everyone's business. It's in every corner of every life. And so the workforce behind cyber security should reflect that. And it doesn't right now. So we have quite a ways to go. And I think there are things that Congress could potentially implement or pursue. I am not an expert, but I can tell you from personal experience, what I've seen is we don't focus enough on skilling in a way that or understanding cyber skills that are useful that aren't coming from four-year universities or colleges, your traditional educational systems that aren't coming through specialized certification programs. I've met really incredible, smart, critical thinkers who did not pursue a technology or cyber certificate, but like you, Amanda, may have grown up coding or producing light mayhem, should I say, on the internet, who are really great at thinking about large issues and how to come up with practical solutions to tackle them. How we include them in our workforce is still a question to be answered, but I think we have a lot of work to do. As someone who's, you know, grown up with people who have learned coding online, I think that we have to look at different avenues rather than just like four-year universities, like you said. Alongside that, how do you think as both a country and an individual person, can we contribute to the effort to better reflect the diversity in America's social landscape? 
And what actions do you think citizens can take to improve cyber hygiene? So that's a big one. So citizens can improve cyber hygiene by doing a few technical things, right? You'll hear about multi-factor authentication or updating your software, patching your software, you know, allowing your computer to update when it tells you to update using licensed and legitimate products and operating systems. Those should be part of our everyday nomenclature, you know, as citizens. And that really starts in a primary educational school system. I do the Girl Scout badge for cyber for my little, you know, second grader, third grader in Girl Scouts. And those are the things that I teach. I also teach cyber safety, but these concepts should become a part of our everyday vernacular starting very young. I think that could contribute to increasing security among individuals within communities. Now, when you talk about small businesses or smaller organizations, I think those organizations and those businesses could benefit from more involvement from large companies that can take on risk, right? Like Microsoft. And I say that because I work here and I think we do a great job of that. But I think shifting the risk to larger enterprises that can take on that risk, right? Shifting into the cloud or allowing uh, certain security products into your system, I think, for small organizations or medium enterprises, that's the key. But overall, I think introducing basic cyber hygiene principles early in our school systems is a way to allow for all of these items to be a part of our everyday vernacular. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important take, especially because even though I've grown up in an area surrounded by a lot of tech, we don't really get the cyber education starting from really young. With your expertise in cybersecurity policy and having seen what issues should be prioritized, I am wondering what cyber threats you see the Biden-Harris administration focusing on right now. From my vantage point, they're really focused on ransomware and they're focused relatedly on digital assets, both trying to stem the illicit use of digital assets and also trying to encourage innovation in that space. But they are hyper-focused on cybercrime, nation-state attacks, ransomware in particular, and that that can be seen in the, in the law that was recently signed by President Biden this week. I think they're going to move on to more nuanced elements of, we talked about disinformation, malinformation, misinformation. They're going to go a little bit deeper there. They're going to go a lot deeper on the use of cyber in facilitating domestic violent extremism. I think that's where they're going, but for sure they're going to stay on ransomware for a little while longer and shift into digital assets and crypto. That's incredibly fascinating again. In conjunction with the previous question, what specific issues do you think should be prioritized more, if any? Again, this is going to sound a little cliche, but I really do think that We increase our security if we increase awareness. There's been several missed opportunities for effective public awareness campaigns. I think the Biden-Harris administration is doing an excellent job of double downing on information sharing and exchange between all of the stakeholders in cyber, in the cyber ecosystem. But I think there's a piece missing that we talked about a little earlier, which is bringing cybersecurity and trust in our cyber ecosystem to the individual community level. I'm hoping to see that they focus 
there more. Now, the Biden-Harris administration has been inundated with all sorts of priorities. And I think that they've gotten it right so far. But I do think that when given the opportunity, expanding awareness to the individual or smaller community level would bear fruit for decades to come. I think my next question actually kind of touches on your point about prioritizing awareness towards the individual. I'm wondering if there's any issues or decisions you found particularly challenging to address or make concerning the ethicality of cybersecurity policy in regards to privacy. What would you say to the groups of people who distrust cybersecurity initiatives, given that cybersecurity is becoming more of a necessity for daily life? Well, I've seen it firsthand in the when the government was trying to protect the elections infrastructure back in 2016. The mistrust or the distrust in cybersecurity efforts was endemic. I think that over time, communities and stakeholders will come to understand the importance of securing their systems and the data on their networks. I think I've seen a shift in that space. The more open we become as a cybersecurity community, so the more partnerships we develop, the more transparent we become, and I use the collective we, private sector and government and nonprofits, the more transparent we become, the more we understand that we're only as strong as our weakest link. I don't know where, where that phrase came from, but it's true in this case. I think it's an evolution that needs to happen and it takes time. But, but we go back to increasing awareness at very early ages, increasing awareness with different stakeholders. I think over time, we evolve into rebuilding trust in our technology and how we protect it. Thank you for that perspective. As we begin to close, what advice would you give to your high school self or any advice in general to younger people seeking to pursue a career in anything about national security or cybersecurity? I know you mentioned it's like a really broad topic, but how to just get interested in what they're doing? So the advice to my younger self would be slightly different than the advice I would give generally. The advice to my younger self would have been, don't repress the science geek in yourself, right? which is what I spent a lot of time doing. My advice for younger people and advice that I, I still take on to this day is to remain curious. Don't stop learning. Ask questions. Seek answers. Pursue things that look interesting. Try and fail and then try again, and then fail again, but never lose your curiosity. Thank you so much for that. Lastly, on a brighter note, what current cybersecurity policies excite you for the future? Are there any accomplishments you find particularly inspiring in the past few days or weeks? Yeah, so this is the geeky thing coming out of me again. The cyber incident reporting for Critical Infrastructure Act of 2022 was signed into law a couple of days ago, or maybe yesterday. I'm super excited about that because it promotes transparency and information sharing. It's not a perfect law, but it, it does promote information sharing at a scale that we haven't seen before that I'm hopeful will be impactful in how we protect our information and our information systems collectively. Super excited about that. Also interested in understanding how the Office of the National Cyber Director will hopefully bring cohesion to how we think about cyber and implement cybersecurity strategies moving forward, how we might influence the collective security of our information systems through the establishment of that office. I think those would be the things I'm most excited about today. Thank you so much for allowing me to interview you today. I really had a wonderful time hearing all of your insightful answers. 
And I guess I'll pass it back on to Suzanne. Thank you so much, Amanda and Kemba. This was a fascinating conversation, really terrific. And this concludes our Women's History Month collaboration with Girl Security. A big thank you to Girl Security for partnering with us on this powerful series. We continue to be in awe of your mission to empower more girls to play a role in our national security. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.